0: It seemed like a normal day at the textile factory in Bangladesh's capital, Dhaka. Managers supervising workers operating machines, making shirts and shiny skirts that someone 5,000 miles away would someday wear. The day was afoot. But under the routine buzz of labor and the slight vibration caused by power generators that shook the workplace every day, there were quick, scared glances and hushed whispers of rumored danger. Because despite the warning of unsafe conditions that they'd all received the day before, when an engineer was called because cracks appeared on the walls of the factory, over 2,000 people had been urged by the owners to keep working. Walking towards the power generators, a Bangladeshi operator flipped one of the power controls. building collapsed. A New York Times photojournalist described the scene that followed as a war zone. Over 1000 people died. The Rana Plaza disaster of 2013 exposed the brutal conditions that many sweatshop factory workers face every day. By then, Bangladesh was one of the world's largest textile export powerhouses, preferred by popular international brands because of its low prices which of course originate from inhumanely low wages. But this tragedy is not alone in the disastrous consequences of today's unsustainable fashion industry. Wired Magazine recently reported that in 2013, it was estimated that the global textiles and clothing industry was responsible for the consumption of 79 billion cubic meters of fresh water, 1,715 million tons of CO2 emissions and 92 million tons of waste. The social and environmental cost to our never-ending appetite for new clothes is no longer acceptable to many people. But is the industry changing along with its consumers? I'm Rosario Lebrija-Razbetayev, your host for Founding Conversation, a podcast brought to you by the the Group, sharing ideas and insights for understanding and improving the modern world. Today we bring you a special episode in partnership with Vanity Fair, where we will discuss the rising trend of sustainable fashion. As consumers and investors, can we accelerate this industry's transition towards fair labor and eco-friendly production? And what role does the media play in all of this? Joining us are award-winning fashion designer, entrepreneur, and broadcaster, Patrick Grant, Caroline Rail, Dasset Management's head of premium brands, and the travel editor of Vanity Fair, Michelle Jana Chan, who also presents the magazine's digital future series, which this month features a parallel video in partnership to this episode.
1: So why don't we start with you, Patrick, because as a designer, you know all of the ins and outs of this industry. You made your career in one of the oldest and most admired sectors of fashion today, the iconic English tailored suit. Can you tell us your story?
2: Yes, I started my career in fashion around about 15 years ago. I studied engineering. In fact, I studied material science and engineering, which gives me an interesting perspective on the current crisis that we're facing in the fashion industry, because I come at it from the science rather than from the art. Um, But as you say, I began my career at a very small bespoke tailoring house called Norton and Sons on Savile Row. And we've always been very proud of what we do there, but more so now because in a funny way, Having your clothes made for you is, in fact, kind of turning the clock back a couple of centuries to a time when we all used to have our clothes made. So we only used to consume exactly what we wanted and what we needed. We only make what people want. And the clothes that we make are made from the finest materials on Earth. They're made by hand in a way that makes them last a very, very long time. And the people that make them are paid extremely well for their labor. But we are incredibly expensive. And this is a, you know, we're, we're very much a niche, but certainly we can be very proud of what we do. Uh, from Norton and Sons, I moved into a number of other things. And I've worked, uh, I started, a, a restarted a, a ready-to-wear brand called eTorts. torts And E-Torts was found, uh, restarted in 2009. Uh, from there, five years ago, I bought a clothing manufacturer in the north of England. And this is a region that was absolutely steeped in textile history. I uh, am speaking to you today from my office in a factory in Blackburn. Blackburn was at the absolute centre of the first industrial revolution, you know, an industrial revolution that was built on the textile industry. Lancashire, at one point in time, not that long ago, produced 85 percent of all the world's cotton goods. And Yorkshire, just over the boundary in that direction, were the centre of the world woolen trade. And at one time, it created great wealth. It created great social change. It um, allowed for uh, many, many people to be lifted out of poverty. And we saw a great urbanisation during the first Industrial Revolution. We saw a lot of people who were agricultural workers move. Uh, from all over the UK to Lancashire and Yorkshire to work in the textile industry. And then in the 20th century, we saw people particularly from the Indian subcontinent move to the UK to take up careers in textile. So it had enormous social value originally, and it created enormous social change. But what we've seen in the last 50 years is all of that disappear. And we've seen the social problems that the disappearance of an industry can have. Now, all of that happened over quite a long period, sort of 250 years in the UK. But what we're seeing now is the same thing happening in in other countries in a much shorter space of time. And that is a very interesting phenomenon. It's very interesting to be part of the back end of a cycle of industrialization, wealth creation, and then deprivation following it. And it's it's a pattern that I can see being played out in other countries in a much fast forwarded way. Anyway, we, we took over this factory and I was trying to think of a way to, to make changes to the way it was operating that would give it a future and, and help it play a part in, in creating a fashion world or a clothing world. And we specifically now talk about clothing more than we talk about fashion. That was better for us all, better for those people employed in it, better for the consumer and better for the planet. And so I started a brand called Community Clothing in 2016. And Community Clothing is a social enterprise. Fundamentally, its it's founding principle is that we create work in areas of high deprivation. And we create work by making and selling really fantastic quality clothes made with great natural, sustainable materials, but clothes that we hope will last a very long time. So we don't design seasonal collections. Every piece we design, we try to design it with a 25-year lifespan in terms of its style, at least. And we make them in such a way that they should last that amount of time. And we, we talk very openly about trying to get our consumers to buy less, to think less of the enjoyment of shopping for the new, and to think more of the enjoyment of owning something for a long time. What we are trying to do is... Help people to understand that this constant kind of churn of newness actually doesn't make you very happy. Great clothes can make us feel great. But if we are on this constant hamster wheel of consumption and disposal, nobody feels great about it really at any point. And certainly the clothes that are produced in that system are no good for anybody.
1: Can I ask you, Michelle, as an editor of one of the world's leading culture magazines, Vanity Fair, Why do you think this is so vital to our society? Why people are so invested in fashion?
3: I'm with Patrick in in flipping the word fashion for clothing because it's how we choose to present ourselves. It's aesthetic and it's status and it has been. But increasingly, it's much more than that. It's about what we we stand for and our values. That said, I don't want to cost it ourselves. Most of the world buys on price, not on politics. But the people who are buying on, you know, A lot of people buying on price, you know, like the people outside where I'm at the moment. I'm in the Seychelles. Most of the fishermen on the on the beaches here don't have 25 red T-shirts in different shades. Like they have, you know, enough T-shirts to kind of get them through the month. But from a glossy magazine point of view, as you ask, there's a lot of money in fashion, in publishing, and they're big advertisers. And Patrick's alluded to that system. Know, fashion, beauty, watches, jewelry, and the media—that gives them pull in glossy magazines. But editors are here to make strong editorial choices, and that's why you know, I've been hired, and others have been hired for our position that we take. You know, we, we as editors, are in a position to make very political choices and um, where we stand, and and
2: should. I just want to make one quick point, if I can, and that's that I think fundamentally, I don't have a great objection to the idea that we have some some fashion in our life. But I look back at how the fashion industry once was, and it was smaller, and it was much less democratic, and that is a, an issue, but it was smaller. And the things that were made were made with enormous care. And as a result, these items of clothing were cherished much more, and they were valued much more highly, and people kept them for a longer time. Partly because they were expensive, but also because they felt more involved in these items. And I think there is a, you know, fashion exists as an interesting crossover between sort of art and craft, and both of those two things are fat, are valuable, and both have a role to play in making the world better. And you know, a lot of people get a great amount of enjoyment from art, and a lot of people get a great amount of enjoyment from fashion. But for me it needs to be smaller. It needs to be smaller and it needs to go back to its original values of very high creativity and design.
1: You have both touched on the subject of the economic side of fashion and how big of a role it plays. So Caroline, I'm really happy you're here because you're our head of premium brands at Big Day Asset Management. What's your view on this industry and what it provides to the economy and to the world?
4: Thank you. Thank you very much, Rosario, uh, also for inviting me because it's true that sustainability has a predominant place now in in the society and in the consumer's minds. And I think the financial community also has its role to play. And uh, interestingly, the fund I run, which is called premium brands, uh, really plays on both fronts of what Michelle was saying and Patrick were saying as well. Because when we select a premium brand in our fund, we first look at the quality of the brand. It has to be exclusive. It has to show know-how. It has to be quite unique. And in that extent, I really completely agree with, with what Patrick was saying. It's what makes your brand unique that will create value over time and which also creates pressing power at the end of the day. And at the other end of the spectrum, and then I completely rejoin Michelle, the thematic fund we created, Premium Brands, has to address long-term consumer trends to make sure that our brands grow over time in a consistent manner. And the three big trends we actually found were the first one, the willingness of consumers to buy the highest quality brands, and that has to go with the rising purchasing power. So when the, right, when, when the purchasing power rises, globally and in particular in emerging markets, you will go for the highest quality brand. This is clearly a long-term trend. The second long-term trend we identified was the willingness of people to express their identity. And then, you know, Michel, it exactly goes to your point. I think it's a very, very important in fashion and in luxury that people can express what they are and what they like and this has been accelerated with social media and with the selfie generation, where all the millennials, you know, they want to look cool and they want to exactly say visually who they are. And then the third and final trend we identified was more to do with well being and the willingness of people to, to show positive emotions, uh, but also to contribute to a better society. So I think it all ties in. If you select, exclusive brands with a, a, a strong know-how and that those brands address the long-term trends and can therefore grow, uh, you can really select very, very good investments.
3: To that point, I think that sustainability has often been seen historically as a drag on innovation, but now it's really become a driver. And of course, in the short term, if, if there were less costs, then the profit would be better. But when, if you're a pioneering brand in sustainability, there's a different kind of profit. It's a, it's a profit in a different way. And, and those brands are brands that people are trusting. And trust, more than ever today, is um, becoming to such a high value commodity.
2: I think that's absolutely right. And I think that trust, that transparency, that honesty, those are all things that brands today, I think are an absolute necessity.
0: The birth of high in fashion is set to date back to the mid 17th century, when King Louis XIV of France, tired of the predominantly black garments produced in the then fashion capital of the world, Madrid, outlawed all textile imports from Spain and commanded his subjects to create colorful and dramatic clothes, founding what is now known as haute couture. His finance minister, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, masterminded the concept of seasonality textiles as an economic stimulus plan to boost the textile, furniture, jewellery, and clothing industries. This innovative law encouraged the French to wear different garments according to seasons, such as silk for summer and velvet and satin for winter. The plan worked so well that he's said to have said that fashions were to France what the mines of Peru were to Spain.
1: Patrick, what goes into making a sustainable cloth? I mean, it's more than recycling, right? I went to a, I don't know if you went, a couple of years ago, there was a V&A exhibition about fashion. And on the top floor, they had all of these incredible materials that they use, beetles, um, banana skin, all sorts of things that they're using for the cloth itself. So can you tell us a little bit about that process?
2: There's a lot of innovation in the world of materials. But again, I think A lot of it is driven by a desire for larger brands to find a way to pretend to customers that they're doing good things. I mean, so take the example of bamboo fiber, for example. Lots of people are very enamored with clothing made from bamboo fiber. Now, most consumers probably imagine or we know that a lot, you know, think that bamboo fiber is a natural thing. You know, you have strands of fibrous material inside, cellulosic material inside of a bamboo plant. And they think that somehow that is taken and twisted and made into fabric. I mean, the truth is that is taken and boiled and, and using incredible large-scale industrial chemistry turned into a source of carbon and hydrogen that is used then to make chain polymer, which is then spun into effectively a viscose type fabric. You know, there's lots and lots of stuff that's happening. That's about, I mean, and and originally, you know, bamboo was used because it's fast growing. It doesn't need much irrigation and it doesn't need much um, fertilizer. It grows very fast, very naturally. But of course, as soon as you start to make a cash crop out of bamboo, Farmers will say, "Well, if I do irrigate it and I do fertilize it, it'll grow even quicker." And so you've now got large amounts of virgin land that's being converted into bamboo crop land that wouldn't have happened. Again, it's (laughs) it's just driving more consumption, and there are lots of innovative things, but you know they all have a cost. They all they're either big chemistry or there's high energy content that's gone into the manufacture of them. We take a very simple approach, and that's that we we tend to favour natural materials and we we work with a couple of organizations one of which is called Fibershed and their whole idea is about complete soil to soil circularity if the product that you create you can create it in a way that has very limited carbon footprint you know actually the way that you manage the soils and the agricultural practice you use you know you can actually create carbon capture by managing your soil in the right way and then at the end of that product's life it can go back into the soil and be sequestered and back so that you have complete carbon neutrality in the whole cycle, and there is no end waste product.
1: Michelle, what's your opinion on this? I mean, you're, you're the travel editor of Vanity Fair, so you must have seen a lot of different materials in different places, or or is there a pattern that you've seen?
3: Oh, I, mean, I think I think in, the, in certain socioeconomic brackets, then there is um, a demand for provenance and a demand for more sustainable materials, and that's, I think, across the board. I mean, it's the... the you know, the standard culprits who are pioneering at this, I'm afraid, it's, you know, Scandinavia, New Zealand. You know, these are the guys, as ever, Germany, who are, you know, who do it well and do it first. I, I mean, to talk about trends towards sustainability, I, I, I tend to kind of move away from the idea of trends because I think it's actually a much more permanent, much more powerful movement, and it. it's not flash in the pan. I think there's plenty written about the millennials who um, are much more willing to pay more for um, more sustainable products, and, I, and that's the way that the world is going. I think, I think even if they don't, even if they change their mind as they, be, you know, become middle aged, legislation will catch up with them too because, because it will have to. Like we'll get to the point where kind of governmental action will also join, kind of you know, some of the corporate pioneers to make this happen. Yeah, I think it's
1: great that we have Caroline here because she's the expert in the subject. I mean, she's dealing with with all these brands that are making or trying to make that shift towards a more sustainable future because they're customers, um, millennials, and obviously the generation set that's coming is going to be much stronger on that, is driving the market towards that direction. So first of all, Caroline, why don't you tell us how you ended up in this uh, sector? It's such an interesting and unique fund that you're managing and why you think
4: it's it's being shifted towards sustainability. I started in 2005 when we wanted to create a new thematic fund on the consumer segment with powerful financial criteria and also addressing the long-term trends. The thing is, in the past 15 years, it has been incredibly interesting to see the upcoming of sustainability topics and how consumers really embraced, I think, this topic of sustainability and responsibility. I think it's very powerful And I think it's actually a new long-term trend. And because consumers are increasingly aware of that, especially the younger consumers, I think producers and brands have to adapt. And that does not mean they sell a brand because it is sustainable, but that means they sell a brand because it makes people dream and it makes strong connections with people's emotions. But the consumers will expect that their preferred brand will be responsible and sustainable. So I think over the long term, brands will have to integrate the fact that they have to improve their supply chain, they have to improve their caring about the environment, sustainability, and all these topics. We have started to see a change, Uh, it's, it's, it's quite obvious. In the past maybe three to four years, where things have accelerated, And I really wanted to say even us as investment managers, we have integrated ESG factors, so environment, social and governance factors into our investment processes. So that means when we select a company to enter our portfolio, the target weight of that company will depend partly by the way we judge the sustainability of of, of that company and the way it actually manufactures products.
1: Have you seen the the pandemic change this at all? Is is the trend changing because of COVID
4: or or has it not impacted it at all? I think COVID actually accelerated those trends. The trends towards sustainability and a better society uh, for sure has been accelerated because there's a more uh, human way of looking at things, I think. Another trend which has been hugely accelerated by COVID is the digitalization of fashion. Uh, We haven't really touched on that, but I think it's actually very important because for a premium brand, you want to access your consumer directly and technology allows exactly to do that. You can talk to your consumer, you can explain the latest collection, you can explain your heritage, you can explain how you can actually design things with the colors for that particular customer. And COVID has accelerated that trend towards technology digitalization so it definitely goes in that in in that direction
2: when i went to business school which was 16 17 years ago there was this, there was a jeff Skoll foundation for social enterprise at oxford university and it was a big deal at the time social investment impact investment you know investors taking a very different time, either different timeline horizon or a different return horizon in order to ensure that they were supporting businesses that were doing good. Do you see that continuing to happen or are investors sort of slipping back into, well, I want to make the same old return in the same sort of time frame that I used to make?
4: Definitely at Pit Management, we are looking in the very long term uh, within the thematic franchise of, of, of the firm. To us, uh, uh, being sustainable and investing in, uh, uh, you know, in innovative materials and, and, and distribution is not contradictory with profitability. Uh, actually, we can even argue that it is a reverse because by, by focusing more on quality and less on opening stores and focusing on volumes, you can actually make savings in some parts of the organization to reinvest in other parts which are more sustainable. We do not see a contradictory effect on the economics of a company uh, by investing in sustainability versus not doing it. At the end of the day, you have to make your brand desirable. And I think, and we actually see it, if consumers understand that your premium brand is also sustainable and there is transparency in the way it is made and you have a story to tell like the one you, you told, people will be ready to pay more. Absolutely, and they say so. They are willing to pay a premium price if you can assure that your product is actually made from sustainable materials in, and, 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 and with a responsibility towards environment. So for us, it, it's actually a positive thing also for shareholders and for future returns. Okay, there's also a
3: risk, increasing risk, that you'll get called out if um, if you're investing in brands that um, you know flouting labor laws um, in their factories or treating people poorly there are reporters out there and we're calling them out in companies and and so if you want to in, in invest in brands such as that there's a great risk I think um, an increased risk on that front and and you know do you want to be with a safer brand that is cares about the circular economy that pays attention to kind of the sustainability of their business and and yes you do I mean that's the answer to it so I think it's a, it's a bit of a lottery, I think, to go for the brands that in the short term might turn a profit for you um, more greatly. But, um, but you can also, you know, you're at risk. There's, you know, there's plenty of journalists out there, not campaign journalists. I find that always a bit of an oxymoron. But just journalists who are reflecting, who are bearing witness, who are out there, who are walking into the factories in Bangladesh to try and find out what the conditions are and whether GAP and ASOS are, are doing you know, things right.
1: Yeah, especially after the Bangladesh collapse,
2: well, yeah, Rana Plaza was a big change. In, but, it but, you know, it, it created a lot of noise for a short space of time. But let's be honest, a lot of those brands went straight back to doing exactly the same things all over again. There is a very short memory in some of them. And again, it partly is down to people, but partly again down to the, the competitiveness of the market in which those brands are operating. I mean, they, it is extraordinarily competitive at the at the lower end of the price scale.
1: We haven't touched on this at all. Can you explain the difference between fast fashion and premium brands, which is what we've been talking about until
2: now. Their model is sell the consumer something new every week. You know, every Monday evening at six o'clock, there is a drop of X number of new items and these items are in, they're gone and something new is replacing it. You know, they are predominantly social media driven. They are spending huge amounts of money paying quite young people to promote their product on, uh, on social media. And, you know, it's it's an incredibly fast turnaround and it's got to the point where they're not even copying. You know, It used to be that they would take what they see on the catwalk and they would produce lower quality, lower cost, faster versions. But now it's gone. It's gone even more aggressive and it's just stuff. You know, it's factories, it's design offices next to factories in very low cost labor countries that are just churning out stuff. That they, you know, pin in and bung on a model. They sell it. They move it on. You know, that to me is nothing to do with the fashion industry. It's just stuff. It's just stuff that is made to be sold. It's made to be worn once it's made to be thrown away. I mean, it's not an industry I really want anything to do with. And it's it's a, it's sad to me that it's got the name fashion attached to it.
0: During the American Civil War, some ordinary people outside the U.S. took an extraordinary moral stance against slavery. In 1862, Manchester's mill workers sent a letter to President Abraham Lincoln announcing a ban on Confederate cotton. This marked an important financial advantage for the Union because Manchester imported around one-third of all cotton grown by southern plantations. By refusing to work with cotton picked by slaves, these workers willingly sacrificed years of wages, risking starvation and destitution and leaving 60% of their meals unused. In 1863, President Lincoln wrote back applauding their self-sacrifice as sublime Christian heroism, which has not been surpassed in any age or in any country. Relief ships with provisions sent by Union Americans soon followed Lincoln's letter. This remarkable story shows it is not only executives and governments who can change an industry, but everyday workers and consumers alike.
1: Michelle, you've had a very interesting career and it sounds like you've traveled all over the world. Would you tell us a little bit about this and how you fit into the fashion industry as well?
3: my journalism kind of moved from kind of conflict news to politics to more business in China and then then features and and travel. So I I guess I've done the whole remit on a personal level, but probably most fits into fashion because I I write about every, I'm a bit of a jack of all trades. I do write about, I can write, I can write about anything. I was hired not because I was obedient. I was hired because um, I have a very, a strong kind of political cause that courses through my veins. And then that's, um, those are the key stories that I choose.
1: So it seems like there's a lot of rage and there's a lot of emotion involved in this topic. So I guess what I'm interested in knowing is what is more powerful in driving the change in this industry, hope or rage? What will bring about more impact? Making sustainable fashion highly desirable from the top or a Greta Thunberg style outrage at the environmentally harmful practices involved in conventional fashion manufacturing?
2: Well, I, I, I'm always a believer that positivity is a much more powerful motivator than, than negativity. It's also just been, it's nicer to live in a positive world than a, than a negative one. I think, right. Right at this moment in time, we're living in the midst of an incredible amount of negativity. And as a business, we always try to sell the positive. And I think that is it. I mean, making people feel good is, uh, I, I believe, a very powerful, a powerful motivator. And it's certainly nicer as a business to be in a business that's all about happiness and jolliness. And we very deliberately try to be happy and jolly in all of the ways that we communicate with our consumers. And um, because that's what we're about, we're about trying to increase happiness amongst those people that work for us, those people that make for us and those people that buy our product. It's it's great. It, it feels good. I mean, there will be a bit of carrot and stick. I mean, I think the world is, you know, the, the, the world will not change without a certain amount of pressure being placed on brands to behave in a better way. But our view is we will do the very best we can and we will try and encourage people to get behind that because it, because it is positive and it, it helps them feel good to be part of it.
3: Michelle, what's your view on this? Oh, I think both, of course, but I um, hope and rage. But I, I, think, I think rage is quicker just to you know, be contradictory. I think you know, that's, I think, a lot of the fuel that gets me really going is... Frustration and anger, and 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 that makes you ask the harder question. On a more global level, there are some really inspiring governments out there that are making some very strong new rules when it comes to the text to textile manufacturing and fashion. And I and I that for me is a big beacon of hope because it's quicker too. And I think the planet needs a bit of speed right now. Like I think um, in order to make these changes, it it almost can't we can't rely on it being organic and languorous like we have to to get on and um choose a different path
2: yeah it's only now that people are starting to wake up to the idea that you know if we don't act very quickly we are all buggered as a species and you know we will completely destroy the planet and there's only one of them we can't all sod off to mars there is an imperative and young people growing up you know my my nephews who are uh, you know my my elder nephew who is 10 years old He knows it. He knows that we have to act in a different way. And there is a a generation growing up that are incredibly aware. We've seen it with things like food. Veganism in the UK is a huge movement. And I think a lot of that, some of it is driven by, by vanity and health. Some of it, though, is driven by a very genuine desire to involve themselves in a food system that is less destructive. You know, we know that meat production uses more resource than um, vegetable production. And so veganism has taken off in a huge way. People have got into it in a really, really big way. They just need to make that same leap in the other things that they buy. And, you know, a huge transformation will happen.
1: What do you think, Caroline? We've heard from somebody inside the business, from the media, and you are in the middle of it with the factor that drives a lot of people, which is
4: money. I think think rage can act as as, as a phenomenal wake-up call. And often rage actually accelerates and and, and makes things happen. Now rage has to be constructive as well, and hope has to follow, and action, positive actions need to follow, of course. And I'm more on the hopeful and optimistic side because again, in the past 15 years, I can witness a, a change of mindset. Which is actually broad-based, definitely at the consumer's end. But now I see through a big majority of companies that things are also changing, if, even if it takes time, things are changing on the production side, on the supply chain, on the distribution. And on the financial community, it's also changing. Again, you know, new products being created everywhere, uh, being cautious on the environment and sustainability. And on my end, so premium brands or or, or consumption-led funds, uh, we are looking at those topics as, as well. So things have changed tremendously in the past few years. And therefore, I think there are very good reasons for hope and we should continue in that direction. And I think we are on the right track.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This was such an interesting episode, especially with our partnership with Vanity Fair. I think there's a lot to look forward to and we're going to have to see how it goes.
2: Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure.
4: Thank you very much. Thank you. A pleasure for me too. Thank you, Rosario.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Found in Conversation in partnership with Vanity Fair. Join us next time where we'll be celebrating Women's Day. Thanks to all our guests, Patrick Grant, Caroline Rail, and Michelle Janachan. This series is brought to you by the PICTA Group, one of Europe's leading independent wealth and asset managers, in collaboration with the How To Academy, London's premier public forum for sharing global thought leadership. Executive producers are me, Rosario lebrija Razbetayev, and Vasily Christodoulou, with Stephen Barber as our editorial advisor.